For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Talk Recorded live. Hello and welcome to another conversation with John McKnight and Peter Block. I'm Maggie Rogers and I'd like to thank you for joining us. John and Peter are the authors of The Abundant Community. Their work joins the movement to support neighborhoods in discovering their capacity to create a strong local economy, raise their children, sustain their health, and care for each other. Each guest is a social pioneer who is, re- who is inventing an alternative future based on the gifts and capacities of citizens. We're pleased today to be joined by Cormac Russell. Welcome, Cormac. Thank you, Maggie. Good to be with you. Thank you. Cormac has worked around the world using the asset-based community development approach to train communities, agencies, NGOs, and governments. Some of his recent work addresses health inequalities in low-income communities and promoting a strength-based approach to working with young people. So after they've talked for a while, we'll open up the call. There are two ways that you can join. If you've dialed in, press star 8 on your phone and you'll be put into a queue. We'll see that you've dialed in, and we can invite you into the conversation. If you're following along on the web, simply post your comments in the chat window. We're very interested in your thoughts and reflections and any questions you might have. Leslie Steven, our website manager, is supporting us in the chat room. So I'll turn it over to John now to begin the conversation. Welcome, everybody. We're... uh Really happy today that we could reach across the Atlantic Ocean and uh, get uh, Cormac Russell to join us. Cormac has been uh, a most creative inventor of uh, new approaches to an asset-based neighborhood that I know of, and we're just uh, really happy that you could be with us, Cormac. No, it's a pleasure, John. Great Great to be together again. One of the things that uh, I've been impressed with is the way you have approached the question of neighborhood building, however we want to label it. Hmm. You've uh, been very inventive in developing neighborhoods around a focus on learning. I wonder if you could tell us about uh, how you've done that. Sure, sure. Well, uh, over the years, one of the things that struck me is is that you can, with a new idea as powerful as um, and as old in some ways as well as new, as the framing that uh, you and Jody and and subsequently you and Peter uh, have created around the asset-based community development way of thinking. I think a lot of people can spend a lot of conceptual time around it and a lot of time in workshops. So about maybe nearly 10 years ago now, it really struck me that the critical invitation is is an invitation to be in neighborhoods and to be in relationship with people. Um, But one of the things that seemed pretty clear back then was that it was kind of countercultural, that an awful lot of people were 
really struggling to form those kinds of place-based connections. And so I thought it would be a good idea when we were spending time in neighborhoods to really be intentional about naming the fact that we were trying to learn again how, uh, how to be in relationship with each other in a neighborhood context. And rather than, you know, looking back with um, rose-tinted glasses and recreating the past, to really think about where we were and what we were doing as a learning journey, um, which could honor the past, but was very much in the present tense uh, and very much about appreciating what we, what you know, what is within and around us. There's a poet, uh, David Wagner, and he's got a lovely uh, line. He says, wherever you are is here and you must treat it as a powerful stranger. Um, and so a lot of a lot of our work is about just calling people into a radical presence and a radical act of revealing what's here and how we can get that connected up and mobilized. So in practical terms, what we did was as people were coming to workshops, we said, well, what would you like to do on Monday morning and how can we come alongside that? And over the years, particularly in the United Kingdom, we've had the privilege of coming alongside um, some folks that you might describe as precipitating leaders. So they really understood that their organization existed not to grow its assets, but to put its assets uh, in the, uh, at the disposal, if you like, of community and of building community. So we found over the years a number of these precipitating leaders who just wanted to shift away from that model of advocacy or that model of service provision and move much more into how they could support people to discover um, and, and, and to connect what they had. So very much leaders who were saying, our work isn't about uh, deliverables, it's, it's about discoverables. So largely the learning conversations, the learning communities move into those leaders saying to local communities where there's, where there's energy really, um, can we walk alongside you for two or three years and how can we be, how can we be of support to you? And largely in places like uh, Bristol and Fife and Gloucestershire, um, Leeds, Litchfield, a whole range of different places, we have been spending time in about 100 neighborhoods, um, very much learning what it's like when people start really seriously discovering uh, what they care about and how they can contribute that and connect it up. So it's interesting, in, in most of the learning uh, sites and the learning communities, we would rarely use the expression asset-based community development. Um, so it's very much about the practice, I would say, and at the emphasis on the, the, the rhetoric or the narrative. Um, over time, it becomes helpful to have some words and some, some frameworks to hang what people are doing on. But largely what we're interested in is how people at neighbor-to-neighborhood uh, level get together and connect with each other. So that's what the learning conversations and the learning communities enable. And I suppose when you've got 100 neighborhoods over a seven to eight year period, what also starts to happen is, is that starts to um, generate a, a set of stories and uh, create a, a little bit of attention, I think, that uh, often doesn't, um, doesn't get bestowed on neighborhood work and work that comes from the grassroots. So over the last number of years, I've really begun to notice that these learning sites, um, because of the power of the uh, efforts that, that are being created, are really beginning to draw a lot of attention and raising a lot of very interesting questions for other citizens who live nearby, 
but also for practitioners who serve communities. And it raises a lot of questions about what do we mean to actually walk alongside communities. Um, so the learning has been quite vast. And I suppose one of the areas that's been very rich for us is we've begun to uh, talk about what we call uh, eight touchstones. And these are just some of the key things that we've uh, started to notice are common in people's practice as citizens, but also uh, as professionals, as practitioners who are trying to be helpful. Um, I don't know if it would be helpful to share some of those with the yeah. with the audience. Absolutely, do. Okay. Mm. Great. So, uh, one of the things that we often emphasise is that a lot of this work is very well. It's all very iterative. So we're working in a very uh, complex rather than a simple or complicated environment. So it's not a science. It's very much an art form. So a lot of the work is is more. It's it's more at the level of poetry and uh, art than it is at the level of a precise model. So I've always been very very cautious about people who talk about models, um, mm. because largely our experience has been that most of the folks who are talking about models are interested in scalability, measurability, and efficiency. Um, and this work is anything uh, but those three things. Um, so I suppose the eight touchstones are very much just an observation of some of the things that people have been doing in quite an iterative way. Um, so I'll just talk through them really briefly. And I, what's interesting is we're seeing these eight touchstones recur in very different cultural contexts. So we're seeing them recur in our work in Singapore, in, which obviously uh, doesn't um, doesn't think of itself in a, a you know in a democratic way. It thinks about itself in a very different way. Um, we're seeing uh, we're seeing the same kind of touchstones recur quite uh, often in our work in the UK, in Rwanda, um, and in Australia. So very very different cultural environments with overlaps, albeit but quite different in, in so many ways. And yet, we currently, we see so many people saying, okay, you know, in the uh, Singaporean context, for example, we do not relate to words like democracy or citizenship, but we have expressions like Kong Pong spirit, and we have expressions like Gotong Royong, which means uh, for a neighbor to contribute to another neighbor without calculation of return. So to me, that's as good a definition of, 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 of citizenship as I've come across. Um, so in all kinds of ways, I think these eight touchstones speak to how we can get more gotong royong uh, happening at neighborhood level and in a way that's, that's, that's truly owned by local people. One of the first things that we really find happens in, uh, in neighborhoods where there's, there's a sense of ownership and power around this work is that the neighborhood themselves actually take the initiating act. So it might be that there's a little bit of convening. It might be that, you know, a practitioner or a host organization like a faith community initiate a conversation. But of central importance is this idea that there's a community of connectors, if you like, or initiators who are saying, rather than focusing on a single issue, our passion is really about how can we get to weave our community together. Um, and instead of trying to get followers or grow a network, we're really interested in how we can grow relationships that allow people to be as free as possible and as connected as possible. So finding that initiating group is a really critical starting point. 
And in, in so many ways, I think, you know, there's no right or wrong way to start this because it's iterative. But in so many ways, we, we've begun to realize that there are connectors in every neighborhood and largely they're getting on about their business. They're often very humble, quiet people who are in the background. You know, they don't tend to be at the front of the room with a microphone. So discovering connectors has been a really powerful touchstone and beginning to support them to discover each other and begin to share their passion for weaving the community is loosely what we call, and I, I, I think what, uh, what you and uh, Peter would call, a connector circle um, or an initiating group. And I suppose the emphasis there is really in making sure that they're the folks that uh, invite um, the efforts, invite the work. So we do not go into a learning community unless we're invited into that learning community. So I think one of the things that's happened in the past in a lot of the countries that I've worked in over the years is with good intention often, people come in from outside uh, trying to help. And to my mind, it is as harmful to come in as, as an outsider trying to help with ABCD as it is with a deficit approach. It's still top-down and it's patriarchal. So I think a critical piece is how are we invited in uh, genuinely to come alongside folk if they want us to uh, and to be helpful. And that's always the trickiest part because um, largely not everybody is in that space. But we've been fortunate enough to find quite a number of communities around the world who want to be in that conversation and uh, see the relationship with us as helpful. And it, us is me and the small team of people that I work with that largely are very focused on how we can accompany uh, local residents and interested practitioners uh, on the journey of getting into right relationship with each other. Um, so that, that's, that's a critical first touchstone. One of the things that we've found over time is a lot of people really appreciate uh, an approach that brings in what we call what we've come to call a community animator, and we get the word animator from the French word animateur. Um, and and sort of as we've watched practitioners who are really skilled at coming alongside communities, what we've begun to realize is they're not doing classic community development and nor are they doing classic community organizing, uh, but nor are they doing the community building. Um, so it, it's been a real interesting exploration to try and find words that actually fit what we're seeing happening in the indigenous context. So it's almost like an anthropological exercise. But animateur seemed to make most sense because the animateur in the French sense is not somebody who's doing anything, you know, in the sense of taking the lead. They're largely the caddy to the golfer, they're Robin to Batman, they're the, the ship builder to the ship's captain. So they're not just coming swinging their hands. They have a set of um, know-how. They have some knowledge about how to build powerful associations and to build associations of associations. But one of their great skills is the ability not to take over, to really be curious rather than helpful um, and to support people to really see that they're worthwhile and they're enough onto each other. So th that role has been really critical. And what's interesting to us is that uh, so many folks who would endeavor to take on those functions and take on that role really, really struggle. It's, um, it's not for everybody. It's a, it's a very, um, 
it's a very specialized set of gifts almost I wouldn't use the term skills it's a set of gifts that people have and a way of showing up and being in service uh, to the community but it's something that has I think been of great value particularly in neighborhoods I mean the scale the scale of neighborhoods we tend to work in is around about 3,000 to 5,000 so we find you know as the initiating group of connectors which represents the diversity of that community uh, comes together with the uh, community animator, you can begin to do things that include more and more people. We have seen community animator or community connectors, local residents and neighborhoods do the work on a voluntary basis, um, but often it's, it's, it's quite intense when you're trying to grow an association of association, uh, really ensure everybody is feeling productive in the neighborhood and grow that power base uh, so the animator has been a, a really important role. And linking the animators and the connectors together, the third touchstone is really about what they do. And that's largely about having conversations of appreciation, which are very much about going in uh, with community and beginning to commit those random acts of revelation and really beginning to discover what's in the neighborhood, what people care about, what they actually want to do something around and how they can begin to get in relationship with each other to build the power to do that. And also, I suppose, not just the power to be productive, but also the power around decision-making. Um, I think the fourth touchstone is really, really critical. And a lot of the work, most certainly, is working with individuals and finding out what their gifts are and what they want to contribute. And I think that's a really powerful starting point, particularly in communities that have become quite atomized, I often joke that some communities are more likely to have individuals watching sitcoms like, you know, neighbors or friends than they are to be making friends with their neighbors. So there's a real challenge, I think, in how you can actually support in real time uh, neighborhoods where there's quite a lot of disconnection. And so a powerful starting point is definitely the one-on-one -on -one conversations with people. But we think the fourth touchstone is equally critical and that's recognizing that neighborhoods are organized. They may be organized in very different ways, but they still do have associations. They have faith groups, reading clubs, walking groups, and even more informally, people who are walking their dogs in the park, uh, et cetera. So really beginning to get serious about coming alongside these associations um, has been of utter, uh, um, utter importance. And um, spending time with the associations, beginning to understand what it is they do, but also what else they'd like to do. And again, we just discover over and over again with individual one-on-one -on -one conversations and with associational conversations, there's this massive, massive um, untapped, below-the-radar reservoir of possibility. And people just keep saying, why is it we have so many different outside helpers who are coming in? Have they have never asked us these questions? And largely the questions we're asking are, you know, what do you care about? What have you done in the past? What else would you like to do? Um, what, are, what are the things that you could do with your neighbors that you think need attending around here? Um, and a lot of the reports that we're getting back uh, is that outside helpers who come in largely don't ask those kinds of questions, that instead the questions that they're asking are questions that are very much preset by the agenda of the organization. So, you know, it's how many cigarettes do you smoke and what would it take to get you on a smoking cessation program as against what would I need to know to grow up well around here 
uh, and you know how can I support you to do more of that so the associational piece and the one-on-one pieces is absolutely central um, and it's hard to do that across a population of 5,000 people it's also hard to do that in a way that really connects people who have been rendered invisible because essentially they've been defined out of community life and redefined into institutional life. So a lot of our work and a lot of why I think the animators are really important as well is because we're very much showing up early to the party, staying late and going to the edge and spending a lot of time trying to figure out where people who have been rendered to the edge as strangers um, can really get in on the action. Um, and, and, and working with the neighbourhood to open up those spaces of possibility. So it's not us um, bridging uh, the, um, the gap between people who have been pushed to the edge and community life, but it's the community welcoming folks in and also uh, people who have been marginalised offering their gifts. So one, one of the things that's really critical in the work, and, and we find this time and time again, we talk a lot about the importance of you know, citizens feeling productive the interesting thing is that as well as you know a gift being contributed we often say this in abcd circles a gift is not a gift until it's given um but it's really really interesting at neighborhood level the critical thing is also about whether that gift is received so we know lots of people who spent a lot of their lives trying to contribute their gifts but not having them received and it's actually the exchange it's the giving and the receiving that creates um, real power uh, and and real energy um, over time. So I think the fifth building block is building connections through social interactions and and shareable opportunities, particularly with people who may have been marginalized. But actually, I think for most people, creating the context within which people can bump into each other and connect with each other at a neighbor-to-neighbor level um, is, is, is of great value. Now, finding folks who are good at doing that, but also enabling them, um, is a lot of what we spend time doing and spend a lot of time unpacking with helping professionals, how you can support people to get in those kinds of relationships. I think what ends up happening when, you you know, those five touchstones um, dynamically are in in the mix is eventually people start understanding that there's a different conversation happening. That, that, you know, it's a conversation that isn't about ain't it awful. It's a conversation about, gee, look what's possible. And and I think that moves into some space where people can begin to vision and begin to dream. Uh, and pretty big dreams, pretty sophisticated dreams. And I would say it's the political space where people are actually moving into the commons and saying, gee, look at all of the things we've been doing. Look at all the initiatives we've been taking on our own right, you know, and to... Uh, what might happen 10 years out from now? What are some of the things that we'd really love to see? What are some of the things we're concerned about that uh, we really want to make sure don't happen? Like, for example, how do we make sure that in the process of creating a really vibrant community, we don't price our children out uh, when they come of age to buy homes here because everybody wants to live in this uh, gentrified or you know this, this, this uh, very powerful uh, community. So... Things like that, and I think that's where people begin to really reflect on what is it we can do ourselves without any permission or help? What is it that outside agencies 
uh, can come and really uh, help us do over and above those things we do ourselves. And then ultimately, what you know, what are we expecting outside agencies to do uh, as public servants as an extension of us rather than a replacement for us? And um, and seven and eight touchstones. Seven is really about keep doing, keep acting. I think the process of actually speaking and being in conversation is really important, but the process of doing together, of showing up, going at the speed of trust, but doing stuff, however small it might be, is what really builds powerful social capital and connection. And the eighth touchstone, these aren't in any particular order, it has to be said, is fostering celebration. And I think cheering on and fostering celebration and a culture of gratitude has been absolutely critical uh, to ensuring that the efforts of local people endure. So they're, they're, they're the eight touchstones that we, we've seen pretty regularly uh, recurring. That's not an exhaustive list. It's not even meant to be a list. I think it's just a, a sharing of some of the, the common practices that we see and that we really admire uh, local people engaged in, but also practitioners who are trying to be helpful uh, engage in as well. Cormac, that's really... <laughs> a rich discussion and uh, so much there to follow up on. Let me ask you at least uh, about uh, two things you're talking about. You've emphasized uh, the importance of people who you you call connectors and the animator associated with them. Uh, for people who are listening here, uh, it may be that we've heard a great deal about leadership and neighborhood leadership. So to shift and begin to think that we also want to understand the indigenous connectorship is very important. Mm-hmm. Posing, I were you or somebody like you, how how does one identify a connector, an animator? There, you can't train them, I suppose, but but how would mm-hmm. you tell somebody else? Well, a connector tends to be this kind of a person. Yes, yes. So, so I, I think I can answer that in two ways. One, one is just kind of theoretically, and the other is with a story. Um, and the story would probably be the better of the two uh, in terms of, of answering. So, so we talk a lot, and, the, and this is, this is um, not unique to us, but we talk a lot about the idea that there are four protagonists in any given neighborhood um, or town or village or estate. So you've got the leader, as you'd mentioned, and there's someone that can bring people uh, behind an agenda, can really um, work on an issue. So, so they're important, but that's not who we're talking about. Uh, you've got gift givers, and that's pretty much everybody, really, uh, who has a sense of their own worth, a sense of their own presence in life. Um, And so if you get the right calling and you say to them, wow, you've got an amazing voice and we've got a choir that desperately needs you, you've got a very good chance of the potential that they will show up and they'll contribute. So that's two. The, the, The third one is the invisible person, and I don't mean to be negative because nobody is invisible, but somebody who's been rendered invisible uh, by virtue of the fact that they're yet to discover their own or be discovered as a gifted individual with gifts, with, with, with skills and with passions. And we're not talking about any of those three. We're talking about, when we talk about a connector in the first instance, we're talking about an individual who has a sense of their own contribution, but they're not trying to grow a followership. 
So they're not a leader. They're not somebody who's saying, here's an issue or here's an agenda, and um, I'm going to frame it up. I'm going to narrate around it. And what I want you to do is to be foot soldiers or even the more progressive leaders who say, I want to form a circle um, and I want you to help me with this issue. So they're not doing that. I think what they're reading, and they're not forming networks either, which is really interesting. I mean, they're not saying to folks, you know, um, let's create some kind of a, an opportunistic set of relationships where I'll owe you and you owe me. What, what I see connectors doing is largely trying to figure out how they can take two people that they see as neighbors who aren't in relationship with each other, but who they think if they got in relationship with each other could do stuff together that they, could, they can't do alone. And I think that's very different than leadership, and I think that's very different than forming a network that often the networker will call my network. They're, they're a funny breed of people who I think came into the world born this way, but largely they're gift-centered in the sense of they see gifts in people often before they see them in themselves. And so they're well-connected, but not in the same way that a leader or a networker is. I think they're connected deeply around trust, and I think they earn that trust because largely people see that they're relationship-oriented, that what they're trying to do is bring people into relationship, but not for a personal gain necessarily, or not for that standard transactional gain. I do think that they get something deeply at a spiritual level uh, in the process of doing it. Um, one of the other things that's really interesting about a connector is they feel okay about showing up in your business. You know, it's really interesting when we, when we work in neighborhoods, how many people will say, gee, I'd love to do something, but I, I feel I was interfering if I offered help or I don't know how to get in to that person's life and offer support without it seeming like I'm interfering. Um, the connector believes that they're welcome. And what's interesting is, is when other people move into uh, spaces like they do, I think that folks might experience it as being nosy or as being interfering, but they have a skill to move into uh, relationships with people where people don't see them as interfering. They see them, I think it's because they do it in quite a gentle, understated way. So I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you um, a story, if I may. And this is a story that comes from Hodge Hill in Birmingham. And uh, so it's a community, uh, it's an estate uh, of uh, about 5,000 people, um, an urban estate uh, outside of Birmingham. And um, about maybe five years ago, uh, Al Barrett, uh, who, John, I think you've met on at least one occasion, as uh, a Church of England um, minister, arrived into the neighborhood and arrived shortly after um, quite an unhelpful um, labeling process had, had, had been uh, undergone in the community where, you know, outside politicians at national level were referring to communities like Hodgehill and actually named Hodgehill as uh, exemplars of broken Britain. And, oh. uh, you know, just classic half-empty stuff. Um, and Al arrived in and uh, within a couple of days of arriving into the neighborhood, discovered that his church had asbestos in the roof and was essentially condemned so he had this great insight that if he couldn't get people into his church, he'd better try and build community outside of the building. 
uh, and uh, cross his fingers after that. And what he did was really interesting because the first thing he did was he invited seven people from his own um, congregation to say, well, we're not going to go out and try and convert any believers or any non-believers. We're going to go out and try and discover community weavers, what they called unsung heroes. So they didn't use the term connector. And I think this is a really clever thing to do, to not use preset terms, but to really go out um, with whatever will work in the local context. So what they felt would really resonate is this idea of people who are behind the scenes, who are doing serial relationship building, um, and are really the glue that's holding the community together. And what they did, those seven people, was just go into bumping places, walk in the park, go to quite unusual lengths to try and have conversations with as many people as possible about who are these connectors and basically then listen to the multiple rumors. So to hear over and over again as people would say, you really need to talk to John because John does. And then they, once they got, I think, about 93 names. And what I love about this, by the way, is, is they didn't do the classic thing of trying to include everybody by putting a nomination form in everybody's letterbox and saying, please nominate an unsung hero. They went into the neighborhood and into the dynamism of the neighborhood and went with the grain. Um, but those 93 people, they then went and spoke to every single one of them, and they said, you know, your neighbors are talking about you behind your back. And they're saying good things. And they told them the stories of what their neighbors were saying about them. And those stories, are in, they're living illustrations of what connectors are. So it was a great celebration. And then they invited those connectors to come together and share the stories and invite some of their neighbors uh, on the street who, as connectors, they felt, you know, if they were invited into an intentional conversation would come and would be excited by that. And so I think that's an illustration of community animation or community organizing, if you care to call it like that. But at the heart of the story, what I love is, is that Al took an animating role on, and largely his role was to figure out how we can reveal those connectors to themselves, to each other, and to the wider community. And in doing that, what he did was, to use an agricultural metaphor, he actually began to create the carrying capacity for a wider conversation with 5,000 people. Well, we, we, Hello? We, we seem to have lost John McKnight. Oh. Cormac, you still there? I'm still here? Yes, you are. Did, did, did you stop talking or were you cut off? I kept talking. I don't know. Did you? Did, well, I'm not sure. When? When? When did I? When did I? The last, the uh, last thing I heard was, uh, you know, among five thousand people. That's uh, that's when Al, I stopped because I, I was wanting to check in. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's this is amazing what you're describing, and your language. Is so fascinating to me. Let me ask you one question, and then we'll open it up, Maggie. Uh, who invests in this work? Because uh, uh, you need paid it's, it's, people. Now, some of them yeah. I know are ministers who are funded sure. by the church to do this work. Who, who else 
That's yes. right. So, so we have a diverse base in, in, in Australia. It's the same. So it's a mixture of municipalities, local governments, um, uh-huh. some um, charitable trusts uh, who have, who's, who've got independent uh, money from government, so they've, they've, they've got a little bit of latitude. We have one NHS trust that actually used some of their endowment uh, to invest in uh, financing community animators. Um, we've seen some housing associations do this. Uh, so it, it, it's quite varied. I think it's still very, very early uh, on in terms of figuring out whether or not um, these institutions are always best placed. I think, I think one of the challenges is with very large institutions, I think they can be really good investors. But what we want is we want to find uh, local hosts who are committed to generational um, relationships rather than three-year or five-year cycles. So I think what we've been trying to work through in the UK and Australia is how we can really honor the assets of the big institutions who really want to contribute to this way of working, but also support them to work with allies that are actually embodied and embedded in the community and who won't be going anywhere over the next 10 years or the next uh, 25. And so those, those are some of the juggling or balancing acts that we're trying to work through at the moment. Uh, yes, Carmen. This is John. I somehow I got hey, cut off on my phone, oh. so so I just wanted to say I'm back. Peter, you were. Oh. No, I was I was thinking it might be good to see if people have questions. Yes. Uh, I'm looking on the chat, and I think I mean it's so beautiful listening to you, Cormac. I just almost. Thank Peter. Thank you. It's just amazing, and the uh, the eight that you list. It's nice to give some order to them, and I know they don't come in sequence. And when you talk about random acts of revelation, so that sentence is such is such a powerful sentence. So, Maggie, why don't you invite see if anybody would like to call in and make a comment or ask a question or just tell us what's on their mind at the moment? Sure, sure. If you would like to do that, if you'd like to call in and talk to uh, to Cormac or to Peter or John, um, just press star eight on your telephone and um, you'll be put into a queue and we can acknowledge you or or just got something in the chat if you're on the chat. So while we're waiting... Wait, wait a minute, we have one, Peter, so why don't I take oh. take this caller? Let's do it. <laughs> Hello and welcome. Yeah, hi, this is Norlin Dimmitt. Uh I've been checking in on these calls for a number of months, but I just want to throw out I've recently shifted the entire vision of what we're trying to do social mission-wise with this little funding engine for good we're building from hopefully disrupting, and I shouldn't use that word, but the residential brokerage industry. We are focusing on the interfaith uh, dialogue movement, and I, I want to put quotes in there, but uh, we, want to, we want to undo the quotes. Um, and I'm wondering how that, how you think that fits into this interfaith dialogue movement of bridging the gap, for example, religions for peace, if you're familiar with them, how that fits into, again, quote unquote, the ABCD movement. Thank you very much. Cormac, you want to comment? Sure. I, I, I think one of the challenges in, in terms of what we're trying to do at working at neighborhood level is 
Firstly, recognizing that faith communities and the culture of building fellowship, the culture of being present in a neighborhood, and the culture often among many faith communities where the pastor will actually come and live among the neighborhood. So they're not salaried strangers, they're neighbors and they're friends, is really, really powerful. Um, So so that's the first thing to say, to honor that, to value that, uh, to find a way that... um, that can be recognized as a powerful asset. I think with everything, with power comes responsibility. And, and, and one of the challenges, I think, with faith communities in this work is making sure that, um, and I want to say this very respectfully and very carefully, but that faith doesn't become a silo um, in, 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 in that sense that we're saying, well, we're only going to do what we're doing uh, because our agenda is a faith agenda. If we do it, we might get some dividend. We might get some faith dividend. I think the people of faith that I've seen that have been most impactful at neighborhood level have showed up at neighborhood level to make a contribution without expectation of return in terms of their own hope or agenda. Um, I guess their fingers are crossed behind their backs in terms of hoping that something will come of that uh, in terms of what they care about and what they're passionate about. But really setting that agenda to a side and saying, well, you know, by bringing all the different faiths together, by bringing people of no faith together, by bringing the Chamber of Commerce together and so on and so forth, we can begin to have a dialogue about this place that we all relate to. Um, I have a friend, Anthony McCann, who says, for me, the life closest to us is where differences are mostly made. And um, so I think that's really interesting because the neighborhood as the primary unit of change rather than the individual or the faith perspective or the institution, that's the radical innovation in this. And I think within that, what starts to happen really is is a culture of community emerges. And, you know, from a faith perspective, I don't think there's anything a whole lot more sacred than when a group of people find a way of being in relationship with each other where they they grow a culture. Um, and, And so to me, I think, yes, by all manner of means, let's organize faith communities to make those contributions for change but I think we have to figure out a way that they can be in relationship where other people come in and where their agenda is in front and center. That's great. I I think I have a question, unless there's another one, Maggie. There, there is one in the chat, and we do have a caller from California. Okay, let's go with... Let's let the caller do it since they're holding their breath. Okay. This caller is Peter Kirsten. Can you hear me, Peter Kirstenbaum? Hello, Peter. Yes. Hey, uh, okay. Uh, okay. You're hearing me, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. I just want to make an observation, a quick observation, uh, and that has to do with the center of uh, the American culture and uh, something that I heard from Africa, which is that the First Amendment... Uh, it's referred to as the I am experience and that people who deal with the third world must understand that the I am experience does not exist and to make the statement I am uh, makes no sense but we are does because I was struck particularly by the expression of people being made invisible 
And an earlier friend in my life wrote a book called The Death of a Nobody. And you're talking about how to make people aware that motivation starts with them, but that point has been extinguished. And in some way, to ignite the uh, fact that it's all about me and that me part has been extinguished uh, and has to be reawakened, I think it's the magic of what we heard in these eight points. So the, the, what is at the very heart of our culture, the First Amendment, is really a danger to any really uh, important community work because it's about the we are experience and it has to start not with me, but has to start with you. And how can we make that aware? How can we like that spark that may have been rendered invisible? What a beautiful expression. What a tragedy that people have been rendered invisible. How can you, without being an I am, let them know they are? So let me make that observation. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Well yeah. put. Yeah. Wow, that's a great Thank question. Can, can, can I just say, I think I, I really genuinely believe through this work that it proves that happiness doesn't come from within, it comes from between. Mm. And uh, it, it, it's just fascinating to me, you know, I'm in Wales today, I'm in Brecon Beacon, uh, one of the most beautiful places in the world, by the way, is this uh, God's country. Um, and, and everywhere, everybody is is God's country, but this is particularly special. And in Wales now, in legislation, they say that they're shifting the conversation nationally, um, which, which is quite a feat, I think. But uh, they're going to try and shift the conversation nationally from a conversation that starts with what's the matter with you uh, to what matters to you. And last week I proposed that, you know, what we have to really do actually is, is expand that out again. And instead of saying what matters to you, really, the question seems to me is what matters to you that you'd like to join with others in doing? And, uh, you know, beginning to really, uh, as, as you were saying, as the caller was saying, you know, really beginning to enable people um, to be in an other-reliant rather than a self-reliant uh, experience. And what happens time and time again is when people get that opportunity to be you know, in a gift exchange with each other, powerful things happen, and it becomes quite, um, quite a way of life. So, um, yeah, great question. Thank you. I have um, a, uh, go ahead, Peter. Uh, have you seen instances where building these relationships has had an impact on people's control over their economic lives. In other yes. words, is there? Could you talk yes. about that? So I, I feel that. Uh, anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been really interesting in in the work in Rwanda, um, but but there are other examples. But just Rwanda comes to mind, and. Um, and this is something I've shared on other platforms, but it really was quite remarkable to me that the way they worked. So the community animators essentially came alongside villages and schools um, uh, in the Gasabo district, um, which is in Kigali, the capital of Rwanda. And one of the, you know, when when they said to folks, "Look, what are the issues that you think you'd like to um, you'd like to begin to address?" And when they really focused in on the issues that people felt they had some, you know, primary assets, uh, things that were local and they could control, 
to bring to bring to those challenges. The two issues that people chose to work on were the fact that there were so many street kids uh, in their villages who weren't going to school and didn't have a connection to community life or family. And the second one was that the teachers who were teaching their kids, mainly these schools were schools that are built by the hands of local people. <laughs> this is not a classic sort of uh, education process. These schools were built and often the parents uh, would supplement the uh, salary of the teachers. And mm-hmm. um, so they were the two challenges. They said, you know, look, we have teachers who are coming who are badly paid, who often don't come to work every day. Uh, how do we do something about that? And in many of the schools now where they have responded to those two challenges, we're seeing something really interesting happening. We're no longer seeing a school that is about formal rote learning. The schools look more like economic hubs and they look more like supermarkets. So the reason that they look more like economic hubs was because most of the kids who were living on the street were interested in learning practical skills so that they were more vocationally oriented than you know that kind of classic academic uh, orientation which would come from a Francophile or an Anglophile um, perspective of education. And the second reason that, that you know, the supermarket kind of phenomenon uh, emerged was because the teachers were being paid $50 a month, but they reckoned that they could actually create a scenario where they'd create an alternative supermarket where $50 would actually stretch as far as $150 a month would in a standard uh, standard supermarket. So, you know, we're beginning to see really quite fascinating examples. Another one in a school uh, where the kids didn't have enough to eat and uh, they started creating their own garden and then folks uh, just didn't have enough resource to fertilize the garden. And this is quite an unusual story, but what they actually started to do was to harvest the urine of the pupils and uh, if you put urine together with water in the right formulation, it's actually one of the best fertilizers you can have. And now they've actually created their own industry where they're selling that formulation uh, to, to other villages. Uh-huh. I, mean, I don't know how much they charge, but uh, they sell it by the billy can. So these are very, very small, hyper-local uh, kinds of initiatives. But in the UK, we would regularly see people create their own micro enterprises and in some instances I mean one of my favorite examples comes from uh, Australia from a, a town in Western Australia called Coolan where they've actually created their own community bank and I think there's about a population of about 500 people in Bendigo uh, who are banking but they create dividends of two hundred thousand dollars a year that they invest back into cultural and community activities so in all kinds of ways I think you know um, when people start taking some control over their economic wherewithal and start, as well as getting more face value um, return for their dollar or, or their pound or whatever it might be, where they actually start understanding the concept of velocity and really getting money cycling more often and plugging yeah. up the, leak, the, the, the leaky bucket. Powerful things happen. So I don't think that we can really anymore talk about community development separate from economic development. I think we really need to think about all of this in the round and in much more ecosystem terms or much more dynamic terms anyway. Carmen, one of the things that might be helpful uh, to our listeners is to know how could they get, uh, do you have some place where they could get the touchstones, what you've told us, 
you've uh, yes. I know you've written them down. How yes. could somebody get those eight touchstones? Well, I think the most straightforward thing to do is is put them on the Abundant Community website. Um, and in the uh, meantime, we can just put a note in the chat room, which links to my website. Um, also quite happy to share slideshow, uh, share resources, share anything really that's going to be helpful. I'm in process uh, of writing uh, in a little bit more detail about the touchstones, but we'll share what we have. And um, if people have questions, uh, we'll we'll put a link to my email so people can ask those questions. So uh, we're going to put on our website a way of contacting your website so people can see the video and other materials. That, yes, but I'm quite happy to share saying? it on your website as well. That, that's they, what I'm saying, but also I think we can put it on your website as well so people can just directly download. Just so you know, that your website, uh, Carmack, is it's on the chat window. It's, oh, is it? it? Okay. Okay. Oh, great. okay. 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 <laughs> And you can, re- you can get the touchstones by going to that site, right? Yeah. You can. So, Maggie, you anybody, can, yeah. anybody uh, else calling in? Uh, I don't see anybody else calling in, but we do have a question that came up a while ago that I'd like to, to just um, present to Cormac, which is who feels the most threatened within the communities where you work? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I... <laughs> That the dynamic of people feeling threatened or feeling um, resistant to change fluctuates. So sometimes it can be people who held leadership positions as residents um, and have worked very, very hard um, to try and make change happen over the years um, and have been working very much maybe, I don't want to use the term traditional, but have been working very much on the basis of trying to change the system. Um, by lobbying for funding or lobbying for legislative change. And I think sometimes when this work starts off, um, you can encounter people who feel quite uh, maybe threatened um, by the work or judged a little bit by the work um, because the work is so much oriented on what is in the community and how it can get connected. And so much of their work has been oriented on the external assets and how we can actually, you know, how we, how, how we can change those external assets. So there's a natural tension between the internal focus and the external focus. And so that's a very real thread. And I, and I think you have to be alive to that um, because this work is political. So that's an example of the politics. And, um, you know, when we're, when we're trying to reclaim or, you know, create a resurgence in the commons, those kinds of tensions are absolutely essential. I, I get worried if I don't see those. Um, so I see them as an indication that something's stirring and that something, something really dynamic is about to happen. Um, and I think the trick is not to see these people as gatekeepers uh, or as a problem, but to really try to engage with them as gifted people in their own right. But yes, there can be real resistance. I think some elected members initially... Um, if they've worked on a kind of clientelistic model where they've grown their base by telling people that they would sort problems out for them. Um, I think sometimes this can be kind of uh, challenging to them because they begin to see that people are starting to form their own power base and starting to 
as citizens define the problem in their own language um, because I think that's one of the things some elected members have done in the past they've defined the problem for the person and kind of become the uh, they've become the interpreter of the institutional world um, I, I have to say here just a health warning of what I'm saying I do recognize that there are many wonderful politicians practicing politicians who don't do this but I'm just trying to answer the uh, the question at hand um, I think sometimes also practitioners who've been maybe working on very traditional ways of engaging with the community, um, who've been classically kind of coming in and just organizing all the young people uh, together with other young people or all the older people and putting them in silos. I, I think they go through uh, almost a turbulent or traumatic period where they start to either question their own work or defend their own work or a classic one that we see is where they come along and say, oh, we've been doing ABCD for years and then they tell you what they're doing and it's, it doesn't quite add up. But these are all, I think, these are all opportunities um, to have some tricky conversations and that's the nature of community. That, you know, it isn't all... Um, it isn't all straightforward. It isn't all positive it, it, in, in that sort of uh, non-contestation sense. A lot of the really good, solid work is political, and um, people have to work things out, and difficult conversations have to be had. That's great. I think we need to bring this, unfortunately, to a close. Uh, John, any final thoughts? And Let me just say, Cormac, it's just a delight. To yeah, I just, thank you. Likewise. Right. It's just, thanks for joining us, Cormac. I mean, this has been a wonderful exposition. Very, very helpful. Thank you. Thank you also. Thanks Cormac. for having me. Yeah. Maggie, why don't you close this out? Absolutely. Well, Cormac, thank you. This um, very rich conversation, and I look forward to having this posted on the the website. The, so we will have sure. the transcript posted, and we will um, have the actual recording on the website as well. So thank you for being with us, and, and thank you it's to been our, a pleasure. our listeners. Um, and to learn more about Cormac's work, uh, you, his website is www.nurturedevelopment.org. Uh, our next conversation will be on Tuesday, September 12th. We'll be joined by Sarah Van Gelder, who's co-founder of Yes Magazine and author of The Revolution Where You Live, Stories from a 12,000-mile journey through a new America. And I think she might have some new things to tell us about, too. So until then, uh, thank you again, and please visit our website, www.abundantcommunity.com, and stay in touch with us on the web and Facebook and Twitter. So this brings our program to a close today, and thanks again for joining us. So long, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, all. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.